0: chapter 14 of pioneers of france in the new world part 2 champlain and his associates this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org pioneers of france in the new world by francis partman part 2 samuel champlain and his associates chapter 14 the great war party 1615 1616 The lot of the favoured guest of an Indian camp or village is idleness without repose, for he is never left alone, with the repletion of incessant and inevitable feasts. Tired of this inane routine, Champlain, with some of his Frenchmen, set forth on a tour of observation. Journeying at their ease by the Indian trails, they visited, in three days, five palisaded villages. The country delighted them, with its meadows, its deep woods, its pine and cedar thickets, full of hares and partridges, its wild grapes and plums, cherries, crab-apples, nuts, and raspberries. It was the 17th of August when they reached the Huron metropolis, Cahillag, in the modern township of Aurelia, three leagues west of the River Severn, by which Lake Simcoe pours its waters into the Bay of Matchdash. A shrill clamor of rejoicing, the fixed stare of wondering squaws, and the screaming flight of terrified children hailed the arrival of Champlain. By his estimate, the place contained two hundred lodges, but they must have been relatively small, since, had they been of the enormous capacity sometimes found in these structures, Cahiag alone would have held the whole Huron population. Here was the chief rendezvous, and the town swarmed with gathering warriors. There was cheering news, for an allied nation, called Carantonans, probably identical with the Andastes, had promised to join the Hurons in the enemy's country with five hundred men. Feasts and war-dance consumed the days, till at length the tardy bands had all arrived, and shouldering their canoes and scanty baggage, the naked hosts set forth. At the outlet of Lake Simcoe they all stopped to fish, their simple substitute for a commissariat. Hence, too, the intrepid Etienne Bruhl, at his own request, was sent with twelve Indians to hasten forward the five hundred Allied warriors—a dangerous venture, since his course must lie through the borders of the Iroquois. He set out on the 8th of September, and on the morning of the 10th Champlain, shivering in his basket, awoke to see the meadows sparkling with early frost, soon to vanish under the bright autumnal sun. The Huron fleet pursued its course along Lake Simcoe, across the portage to Balsam or Sturgeon Lake, and down the chain of lakes which formed the sources of the river Trent. As the long line of canoes moved on its way, no human life was seen, no sign of friend or foe, yet at times, to the fancy of Champlain, the borders of the stream seemed decked with groves and shrubbery by the hands of men, and the walnut-trees, laced with grapevines seemed decorations of a pleasure-ground. They stopped and encamped for a deer-hunt, five hundred Indians in line, like the skirmishes of an army advancing to battle, drove the game to the end of a woody point, and the canoe-men killed them with spears and arrows as they took to the river. Champlain and his men keenly relished the sport, but paid a heavy price for their pleasure. A Frenchman, firing at a buck, brought down an Indian, and there was need of liberal gifts to console the sufferer and his friends. The canoes now issued from the mouth of the Trent. Like a flock of venturous wildfowl they put boldly out upon Lake Ontario, crossed it in safety, and landed within the borders of New York, on or near the point of land west of Hungry Bay. After hiding their light craft in the woods, the warriors took up their swift and wary march, filing in silence between the woods and the lake, for four leagues along the strand. Then they struck inland, threaded the forest, crossed the outlet of Lake Oneida, and after a march of four days, were deep within the limits of the Iroquois, On the ninth of October some of their scouts met a fishing party of this people, and captured them, eleven in number, men, women, and children. They were brought to the camp of the exultant Hurons. As a beginning of the jubilation, a chief cut a finger off of one of the women, but desisted from further torturing on the angry protest of Champlain, reserving that pleasure for a more convenient season. On the next day they reached an open space in the forest. The hostile town was close at hand, "'surrounded by rugged fields with a slovenly and savage cultivation. "'The young Hurons in advance saw the Iroquois at work among the pumpkins and maize, "'gathering their rustling harvest. "'Nothing could restrain the hare-brained and ungoverned crew. "'They screamed their war-cry and rushed in, "'but the Iroquois snatched their weapons, "'killed and wounded five or six of the assailants, "'and drove back the rest discomfited. "'Champlain and his Frenchmen were forced to interpose,' and the report of their pieces from the border of the woods stopped the pursuing enemy, who withdrew to their defences, bearing with them their dead and wounded. It appears to have been a fortified town of the Onondagas, the central tribe of the Iroquois Confederacy, standing, there is some reason to believe, within the limits of Madison County, a few miles south of Lake Oneida. Champlain describes its defensive works as much stronger than those of the Huron villages. They consisted of four concentric rows of palisades, formed of trunks of trees thirty-five feet high, set aslant in the earth, and intersecting each other near the top, where they supported a kind of gallery, well defended by shop-proof timber, and furnished with wooden gutters for quenching fire. A pond or lake, which washed one side of the palisade, and was led by sluices within the town, gave an ample supply of water, while the galleries were well provided with magazines of stones. Champlain was greatly exasperated at the dulcitory and futile procedure of his Huron allies. Against his advice, they now withdrew to the distance of a cannon-shot from the fort, and encamped in the forest, out of sight of the enemy. I was moved, he says, to speak to them roughly and harshly enough, in order to incite them to do their duty, for I foresaw that if things went according to their fancy, nothing but harm could come of it, to their loss and ruin. He proceeded, therefore, to instruct them in the art of war." In the morning, aided doubtless by his ten or twelve Frenchmen, they set themselves with alacrity to their prescribed task. A wooden tower was made, high enough to overlook the palisade, and large enough to shelter four or five marksmen. Huge wooden shields, or movable parapets, like the mantlets of the Middle Ages, were also constructed. Four hours sufficed to finish the work, and then the assault began. Two hundred of the strongest warriors dragged the tower forward, and planted it within a pike's length of the palisade. Three arquebusiers mounted to the top, where, themselves well sheltered, they opened a raking fire along the galleries, now thronged with wild and naked defenders. But nothing could restrain the ungovernable Hurons. They abandoned their mantelets, and, deaf to every command, swarmed out like bees upon the open field, leaped, shouted, shrieking their war-cries, and shot off their arrows, while the Iroquois, yelling defiance from their ramparts, sent back a shower of stones and arrows in reply. A Huron, bolder than the rest, ran forward with firebrands to burn the palisade, and others followed with wood to feed the flame. But it was stupidly kindled on the leeward side, without the protecting shields designed to cover it, and torrents of water, poured down from the gutters above, quickly extinguished it. The confusion was redoubled. Champlain strove in vain to restore order. Each warrior was yelling at the top of his throat, and his voice was drowned in the outrageous din. Thinking, as he says, that his head would split with shouting, he gave over the attempt, and busied himself and his men with picking off the Iroquois along their ramparts. The attack lasted three hours, when the assailants fell back to their fortified camp, with seventeen warriors wounded. Champlain, too, had received an arrow in the knee, and another in the leg, which for the time disabled him. He was urgent, however, to renew the attack, while the Hurons, crestfallen and disheartened, refused to move from their camp unless the five hundred allies, for some time expected, should appear. They waited five days in vain, beguiling the interval with frequent skirmishes, in which they were always worsted, then began hastily to retreat, carrying their wounded in the centre, while the Iroquois, sallying from their stronghold, showered arrows on their flanks and rear. The wounded, Champlain among the rest, after being packed in baskets made on the spot, were carried each on the back of a strong warrior. Bundled in a heap, says Champlain, doubled and strapped together after such a fashion that one could move no more than an infant in swaddling-clothes. The pain is extreme, as I can truly say from experience, having been carried several days in this way, since I could not stand, chiefly on account of the arrow-wound I had got in the knee. I never was in such torment in my life. "'for the pain of the wound was nothing to that of being bound and pinioned "'on the back of one of our savages. "'I lost patience, and as soon as I could bear my weight "'I got out of this prison, or rather out of hell.' "'At length the dismal march was ended. "'They reached the spot where their canoes were hidden, "'found them untouched, embarked, and recrossed "'to the northern shore of Lake Ontario. "'The Hurons had promised Champlain an escort to Quebec, "'but as the chiefs had little power in peace or war,' Beyond that of persuasion, each warrior found good reason for refusing to lend his canoe. Champlain, too, had lost prestige. The man with the iron breast had proved not inseparably wedded to victory, and though the fault was their own, yet not the less was the luster of their hero tarnished. There was no alternative. He must winter with the Hurons. The great war-party broke into fragments, each band betaking itself to its hunting-ground. A chief named Durantle, or Durantle, offered Champlain the shelter of his lodge, and he was glad to accept it. Meanwhile, Etienne Bruhl had found cause to rue the hour when he undertook his hazardous mission to the Carantan allies. Three years passed before Champlain saw him. It was in the summer of 1618 that, reaching the Sault Saint Louis, he found there the interpreter, his hands and his swarthy face marked with traces of the ordeal he had passed. Bruhl then told him his story. He had gone, as already mentioned, with twelve Indians to hasten the march of the Allies, who were to join the Hurons before the hostile town. Crossing Lake Ontario, the party pushed onward with all speed, avoiding trails, threading the thicket forests and darkest swamps, for it was the land of the fierce and watchful Iroquois. They were well advanced on their way when they saw a small party of them crossing a meadow, set upon them, surprised them, killed four and took two prisoners, whom they led to Corontonon, a palisaded town with a population of eight hundred warriors, or about four thousand souls. The dwellings and defences were like those of the Hurons, and the town seems to have stood on or near the upper waters of the Susquehanna. They were welcomed with feasts, dances, and an uproar of rejoicing. The five hundred warriors prepared to depart, but, engrossed by the general festivity, they prepared so slowly, that though the hostile town was but three days distant, they found on reaching it that the besiegers were gone Brule now returned with them to Carantonan, and with enterprise worthy of his commander, spent the winter in a tour of exploration. Descending a river, evidently the Susquehanna, he followed it to its junction with the sea, through territories of populous tribes, at war the one with the other. When in the spring he returned to Carantonan, five or six of the Indians offered to guide him towards his countrymen. Less fortunate than before, he encountered on the way a band of Iroquois, who, rushing upon the party, scattered them through the woods. Brule ran like the rest. The cries of pursuers and pursued died away in the distance. The forest was silent around him. He was lost in the shabby labyrinth. For three or four days he wandered, helpless and famished, till at length he found an Indian footpath, and, choosing between starvation and the Iroquois, desperately followed it to throw himself on their mercy. He soon saw three Indians in the distance, laden with fish newly caught, and called to them in the Huron tongue, which was radically similar to that of the Iroquois. They stood amazed, then turned to fly, but Brule, gaunt with famine, flung down his weapons in token of friendship. They now drew near, listened to the story of his distress, lighted their pipes, and smoked with him, then guided him to their village and gave him food. A crowd gathered about him. "'Whence do you come? Are you not one of the Frenchmen, the men of iron, who make war on us?' Brule answered that he was of a nation better than the French, and fast friend of the Iroquois. His incredulous captors tied him to a tree, tore out his beard by handfuls, and burned him with firebrands, while their chief vainly interposed on his behalf. He was a good Catholic, and wore an agnus dei at his breast. One of his torturers asked what it was, and thrust out his hand to take it. "'If you touch it,' exclaimed Brule, "'you and all your race will die.' The Indian persisted the day was hot and one of those thunder-gusts which often secede the fierce heats of an american midsummer was rising against the sky brule pointed to the inky clouds as tokens of the anger of his god the storm broke and as the celestial artillery boomed over their darkening forests the iroquois were stricken with a superstitious terror they all fled from the spot leaving their victim still bound fast until the chief who had endeavoured to protect him returned cut the cords, led him to his lodge, and dressed his wounds. Thenceforth there was neither dance nor feast to which Brule was not invited, and when he wished to return to his countrymen, a party of Iroquois guided him four days on his way. He reached the friendly Hurons in safety, and joined them on their yearly descent made to meet the French traders at Montreal. Brule's adventures find in some points their counterpart in those of his commander on the winter hunting-grounds of his Huron allies. As we turn the ancient, worm-eaten page which preserves the simple record of his fortunes, a wild and dreary scene rises before the mind—a chill November air, a murky sky, a cold lake, bare and shivering forests, the earth strewn with crisp brown leaves, and by the waterside, the bark sheds and smoking campfires of a band of Indian hunters. Champlain was of the party. There was ample occupation for his gun, for the morning was vocal with the clamor of wildfowl and his evening meal was enlivened by the rueful music of the wolves. It was a lake north or northwest of the side of Kingston. On the borders of a neighboring river, twenty-five of the Indians had been busied ten days in preparing for their annual deer-hunt. They planted posts interlaced with boughs in two straight converging lines, each extending more than half a mile through forests and swamps. At the angle where they met was made a strong enclosure like a pound. At dawn of day the hunters spread themselves through the woods, and advancing with shouts, clattering of sticks, and howlings like those of wolves, driving the deer before them into the enclosure, where others lay in wait to dispatch them with arrows and spears. Champlain was in the woods with the rest, when he saw a bird whose novel appearance excited his attention, and gun in hand he went in pursuit. The bird, flitting from tree to tree, lured him deeper and deeper into the forest, then took wing and vanished. The disappointed sportsman tried to retrace his steps, but the day was clouded, and he had left his pocket-compass at the camp. The forest closed around him, trees mingled with trees in endless confusion. Bewildered and lost, he wandered all day, and at night slept fasting at the foot of a tree. Awaking, he wandered on till afternoon, when he reached a pond slumbering in the shadow of the woods. There were waterfowl along its brink, some of which he shot, and for the first time found food to allay his hunger he kindled a fire cooked his game and exhausted blanketless drenched by a cold rain made his prayer to heaven and again lay down to sleep another day of blind wandering succeeded and another night of exhaustion he had found paths in the wilderness but they were not made by human feet once more roused from his shivering repose he journeyed on till he heard the tinkling of a little brook and bethought him of following its guidance in the hope that it might lead him to the river where the hunters were now encamped. With toilsome steps he followed the infant stream, now lost beneath the decaying masses of fallen trunks or the impervious intricacies of matted windfalls, now stealing through swampy thickets or gurgling in the shade of rocks, till it entered at length not into the river but into a small lake. Circling around the brink he found the point where the brook ran out and resumed its course." listening in the dead stillness of the woods a dull hoarse sound rose upon his ear he went forward listened again and could plainly hear the plunge of waters there was a light in the forest before him and thrusting himself through the entanglement of bushes he stood on the edge of a meadow wild animals were here of various kinds some skulking in the bordering thickets some browsing on the dry and matted grass on his right rolled the river wide and turbulent and along its bank he saw the portage path by which the Indians passed the neighbouring rapids. He gazed about him. The rocky hills seemed familiar to his eye. A clue was found at last, and kindling his evening fire with grateful heart, he broke a long fast on the game he had killed. With the break of day he descended at his ease along the bank, and soon descried the smoke of the Indian fires curling in the heavy morning air against the grey borders of the forest. The joy was great on both sides— the Indians had searched for him without ceasing, and from that day forth his host, Durantal, would never let him go into the forest alone. They were thirty-eight days encamped on this nameless river, and killed in that time a hundred and twenty deer. Hard frosts were needful to give them passage over the land of lakes and marshes that lay between them and the Huron towns. Therefore they lay waiting till the fourth of December, when the frost came, bridged the lakes and streams, and made the oozy marsh as firm as granite. Snow followed, powdering the broad waist with dreary white. Then they broke up their camp, packed their game on sledges or on their shoulders, tied on their snowshoes, and began their march. Champlain could scarcely endure his load, though some of the Indians carried a weight fivefold greater. At night they heard the cleaving ice uttering its strange groans of torment, and on the morrow there came a thaw. For four days they waded through slush and water up to their knees. Then came the shivering northwest wind, And all was hard again. In nineteen days they reached the town of Cahiag, and lounging around their smoky lodge fires, the hunters forgot the hardship of the past. For Champlain there was no rest. A double motive urged him: discovery, and the strengthening of his colony by widening its circle of trade. First he repaired to Carhagua, and here he found the friar in his hermitage still praying, preaching making catechisms, and struggling with the manifold difficulties of the Huron tongue. After spending several weeks together, they began their journeyings, and in three days reached the chief village of the nation of Tobacco, a powerful tribe akin to the Hurons, and soon to be incorporated with them. The travellers visited seven of their towns, and then passed westward to those of the people whom Champlain calls the chevaux releves and whom he commends for neatness and ingenuity, no less than he condemns them for the nullity of their summer attire. As the strangers passed from town to town, their arrival was everywhere the signal of festivity. Champlain exchanged pledges of amity with his hosts, and urged them to come down with the Hurons to the yearly trade at Montreal. Spring was now advancing, and anxious for his colony, he turned homeward, following that long circuit of Lake Huron and the Ottawa, which Iroquois hostility made the only practicable route. Scarcely had he reached the Nipissings, and gained from them a pledge to guide him to that delusive northern sea which never ceased to possess his thoughts, when evil news called him back in haste to the Huron towns. A band of those Algonquins who dwelt on the great island in the Ottawa had spent the winter in camp near Cahiag, whose inhabitants made them a present of an Iroquois prisoner, with the friendly intention that they should enjoy the pleasure of torturing him. The Algonquins, on the contrary, fed, clothed, and adopted him, on this the donors, in a rage, sent a warrior to kill the Iroquois. He stabbed him, accordingly, in the midst of the Algonquin chiefs, who in requital killed the murderer. Here was a casus belli involving the most serious issues for the French, since the Algonquins, by their position on the Ottawa, could cut off the Hurons and all their allies from coming down to trade. Already a fight had taken place at Cahiag, the principal Algonquin chief had been wounded, and his band forced to purchase safety by a heavy tribute of wampum, and a gift of two female prisoners. All eyes turned to Champlain as umpire of the quarrel. The great council-house was filled with Huron and Algonquin chiefs, smoking with that immobility of feature beneath which their race often hide a more than tiger-like ferocity. The umpire addressed the assembly, enlarged on the folly of falling to blows between themselves, when the common enemy stood ready to devour them both, extolled the advantages of the French trade and alliance, and, with zeal not wholly disinterested, urged them to shake hands like brothers. The friendly council was accepted, the pipe of peace was smoked, the storm dispelled, and the commerce of New France rescued from a serious peril. Once more Champlain turned homeward, and with him went his Huron host, Durantal. Le Caron had preceded him, and on the 11th of July the fellow-travellers met again in the infant capital of Canada the indians had reported that champlain was dead and he was welcomed as one risen from the grave the friars who were all here chanted lands in their chapel with a solemn mass and thanksgiving to the two travellers fresh from the hardships of the wilderness the hospitable board of quebec the kindly society of countrymen and friends the adjacent gardens always to champlain an object of especial interest seemed like the comforts and repose of home The chief Durantal found entertainment worthy of his high estate—the fort, the ship, the armor, the plumes, the cannon, the marvelous architecture of the houses and barracks, the splendors of the chapel, and, above all, the good cheer outran the boldest excursion of his fancy, and he paddled back at last to his lodge in the woods, bewildered with astonishment and admiration. End of chapter 14